0: scholarly podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Maximus, and I'm a clinician educator and associate program director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh. Today, we'll be discussing the topic of a recent manuscript published in the ATS Scholar in May 2023 entitled Build It and They Shall Come, Medical Education Communities of Practice with my guest today, Dr. Diana Kelm. Dr. Kelm is an assistant professor of medicine in the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, Associate Program Director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship Program, and the Medical Director of the Multidisciplinary Simulation Center at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She was also recently awarded the Mayo Clinic's 2023 Mid-Career Clinician Education Investigators Award to fund and support her research endeavors. She's a prolific investigator in the field of medical education, and her research focuses on procedural training, gender disparities, and interprofessional education. Dr. Kelm, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad to, to be here with you and
0: the listeners today. Yeah, and this is it's exciting for me because we've interacted at so many of these conferences, and it's nice to actually get the chance to set aside some time to talk to you about a project that you were deeply involved in. Yeah, agreed. So- Give us a little bit of background about kind of the development of this whole experience within the ATS section of medical education program. Maybe you can just kind of give us a little bit of like the history of how, how all of this came to be. Yeah, no, it's a
1: fascinating history. And I have to say, I cannot take credit for the initial development of these communities of practice. Dr. Graham Carlos kind of was a brainchild behind it. And so, they had, with the support of Dr. Jen McAllister and Dr. Henry Fessler, created the a working group through the section of medical education on education research. So that was kind of the working group that they created. And the goal really was several things, but we could talk about that shortly, but they created these communities of practice or pods with various areas of interest. People could then join that these pods based on their interest and then the goal really was to improve or participate in education research and so then we decided to understand if that was helpful because this was done in the initial working group i think was 2017 to 2019 and so then we wanted to assess the benefit of it. And so that's what this paper is about. It was a survey of those leaders and working group members to see if they found this community as a practice being helpful in various ways. But we could talk about that as well. So that's kind of how it started is as a working group through the SOMI. And then kind of we have a second working group that we could talk about too, called the Project Leadership Working Group, that really kind of took it to another level. So that's how it started through just. Talking to each other at international conference and at SOMI meetings, and just kind of understanding the needs of what we wanted, and realized that we need to do more education research, and that's really how it started.
0: Yeah, and that's a great segue into thinking a little bit about even more broadly before we get into like the nitty gritty of this project and the groups and whatnot through ATS. You know, an important component of. The academic clinician edu- educator career is considered to be this scholarship piece. How do you, or you know, in your conversations with the other your co-investigators and other leaders in this group, how would you characterize that kind of scholarship piece?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it's evolved over the years. Often, many times we think published manuscripts as the academic currency, which I think is still the gold standard to get published in a, a PubMed indexed journal. And I think that's still a great goal to, to work towards. But thankfully, I think now in 2023, there are other venues for scholarship, I think, including podcasts such as this or webinars, peer-reviewed blogs. So I think there's a lot more that we can do in scholarship that isn't just a typical PubMed indexed manuscript. So I think there's that helps broaden our scope and reach, I think, as well.
0: Yeah, I always appreciated that about this kind of career pathway that we've selected is that there's a lot of variety in what can be, should and ought to be valued not only by institutions, but by our own community of educators as well. And that can get recognized. And that also has maybe, you know, in some cases more value than a, than an esoteric paper somewhere. It could be actually Mm -hmm. utilized on a day-to-day basis by learners and educators. Yes. Yeah, so it's nice to know that, yeah, scholarship can encompass all of those things. And, and at the same time, even though we have access to all these possibilities, it can sometimes be one of the most fraught aspects for many faculty to actually kind of really grab a hold of that scholarship piece, especially junior faculty who are starting out. And from reading your paper, building communities of practice is one approach that your group implemented and studied. So can you tell us about this concept of communities of practice? Like, what does that mean? And are there examples of it that you can point us to?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I think communities of practice is an interesting concept. I think most of us know this, it's just kind of a, a fancy term for it, but it's a, a group of people that may share a common concern or a set of problems or even just an area of interest that they really kind of puts them together. So it's kind of some sort of shared interests that pulls them together to, to work towards both individual and group goals. So- we here at ATSOMI we created these communities of practice through these pods that we created that we'll get into more detail but other people have done this in kind of the research networks to build camaraderie as well so um, as the paper discusses and there's references there that you can look at there's the association of pediatric program directors they did a longitudinal educational assessment research network that that really was kind of the community practice for kind of research Development and camaraderie and things like that. So, there are some things in the literature on communities of practice. And so, this is just one way we did it differently in the sense that we used an international society in creating that society, that communities of practice.
0: Yeah, I love that you pointed that out, that this was unique and that it came out of the larger ATS Society meeting. And I think it's a great point in focusing on you're looking for your you're looking for your people, essentially, Mm -hmm. and you're looking for your people to, to work with and to get mentorship from or to give mentorship to or to collaborate kind of across institutions I think it's interesting especially for junior folks you you come through your training with your residency cohort and your fellowship cohort and then you pop out as a junior faculty member and sometimes you don't it's harder to find your find your crew and so I think I think of this community of practice as a way of like finding your crew and your people and your cohort through perhaps like more, you know, through virtual means and through the ATS society meetings and through like broadening the scope, as opposed to only looking around who you have locally, Mm -hmm. which can vary from place to place, or you go to a new place after your training and you don't already have those social networks formed. And I appreciate too, that you pointed out that research, the research folks do this all the time. I think that this is more common within their within their practice because of the topics that they have to collaborate on and that they come mm-hmm. together on. So as educators, it's good for us to use that as an example. So yes. Yeah, so tell us more than about the, the concept of the pods, like what is a pod and what was the goal? What is the goal of a pod?
1: Yeah, no, great. So These pods were created with the first iteration of the working group by Dr. Carlos. So it was the Educational Research Working Group through the section of medical education. And each pod or group had a different area of interest. So that could be simulation, leadership, communication, transitions of care, et cetera. So each pod had kind of a a specific focus area. And people could then decide if they wanted to be part of that group whichever area they they had interest. I was a fellow at the time of this initial kind of creation and or early staff. And so I was part of a pod or two, and it was really just kind of a survey people would or kind of a word of mouth that people would find out or at the international conference. Hey, do you want to be part of these, you know, pods and these are the areas of interest and things like that. And it was a Google doc, you could sign up. There were leaders, the leaders were decided upon. People could self-nominate, say, I want to be a leader of a a certain pod. Then the leadership of Somi would kind of decide, you know, based on experience and and things like that, who could be a pod leader, but anybody could be a working group or pod member. And so it was really mostly kind of word of mouth, international conference. It was a Google doc that people would sign up, but I do, I still really value these pods because I felt and we could talk about this more, that this really helped with my career development and starting to get my face out there and get to collaborate with amazing people around this the country versus just within my own institution. And so that was how the pods were c- kind of created just by discussions with the leadership at SOMI and creating this working group and then people joined as they wanted to. And the purpose was a couple of things at, with the first iteration. It was to one, increase ATS scholarly activity in medical education. So that was a, a big part of it. And the second part was to advance our medical education research skills among the working group members. Because as you mentioned, you know, maybe you're new to an institution and no, you want to do medical education, but nobody in your institution does it. So then you can rely on somebody from another institution through these pods to help kind of build your skills or vice versa. And so it really just kind of helps build that, those those skill sets that we need as clinician educators and in medical education research.
0: Yeah, that's helpful to like know kind of the the logistics and the mechanics of how they worked. And I I vividly remember the Google Doc. And I appreciated always, and, and in hearing from you, but I appreciated in that experience just how democratic it was, right? Like anybody can sign up for this. Like you do not need to be 10 years into your career. Or you don't need to like know somebody you can just self nominate essentially to, to participate at least. And as you mentioned, maybe the leadership structure of it was based more on experience and kind of mm-hmm. not only your own personal experience, but experience within the SOMI and, and the mm-hmm. ATS more broadly. And was there like, were there specific like roles and expectations? Like how did that piece work? How did the, the norms of the groups or the pods like really develop? Yeah.
1: Yeah, great question. And I think this is where some of the challenges started being seen because some pod leaders were very focused and able to really lead their team with kind of dividing out roles, responsibilities, taking ownership, holding people accountable. But not all pods could do pod leaders could do that. And so you could definitely tell that there was a difference in how successful a pod was based on the leader. And so there really wasn't clear roles, expectations, oversight necessarily. You know, it's hard to kind of, you know, require people to do, oh, you have to have a published manuscript by the end of this. You know, the year when we're all so busy. Right. And, um, And this is a voluntary thing people are doing. So it's really hard to make requirements. It was kind of suggested that people should work on a project or have submit something together, that sort of thing. So that's why we created actually a second iteration of a working group. Called project leadership uh, working group, and the focus of that really was on the accountability roles, expectation creation with the pod leader. So really developing the pod leaders. So that was created in 2020, it has been really successful. And so I think the first iteration we learned challenges, and then the second iteration we were able to, to hopefully fix some of those challenges. But again, we have continued challenges that we could talk about too. But yeah, I think it was it is really hard to make you know requirements but i think the roles and expectations were not really clear at least in the first iteration and it really varied between each pod
0: yeah i mean it's a great point at the end of the day like all of this is is extra it's not a part of individual mm-hmm. people's jobs i mean the scholarship component is a large part of many of our identities and our goals and things like that as individuals but the this time that people set aside was voluntary as you pointed Mm -hmm. out so ultimately Mm -hmm. if there was productivity it would be helpful for each of those individuals but like how to get there and how to how to distribute the workload and things like that that's hard to navigate especially in an in an early iteration Mm -hmm. Uh, so I can imagine that that maybe it was bumpier for some pods Mm-hmm. And others. So then tell us about kind of the survey process that you described. Like, did you always intend to, to evaluate the pod structure? Like when it was, when the pods were born, was there always this plan to go back and evaluate it? Did it come later when the group, the leadership group asked, hmm, how are we doing? Tell us about how that came up and the development of the survey.
1: Yeah, no great questions. I think, you know, as educators we always right want to know how we're doing and if whatever we in, you know implement is making impact or not so i think it was always in the the in the forecast for the future. And so I think that was always something we wanted to do. And so the survey was really focused. We wanted to make it as simple as possible so that people can fill it out. And we thankfully had a really strong response rate, hopefully because we try to keep it to the point. But really our goal was simple. I think we wanted to understand what were some of the benefits that pod members had with being part of this working group. And also what were the biggest challenges and obstacles? Because the goal would be then to, to see if there's anything controllable, right? Can we fix things within that and within those challenges and obstacles? Um, We also wanted to understand how people maybe became members of it. Were they able to produce scholarship? And if so, what kind? And also, you know, if they were a trainee, because I think that could affect participation when you're a trainee. Um, I know I was a trainee with the first iteration at least through some of it. And so, and then we just left kind of a question like, hey, what can we do to improve pods in the future and that sort of stuff? So it was really kind of a simple survey getting at the, I think the meat of the matter is are these pods helpful and what are the challenges and what can we do to make it better?
0: And did you all, when you set out to review this, did you already have in mind how you were going to define if the pods were success, you know, quote unquote successful or the communities of practice, like what, how to define success from that?
1: Yeah. And I think that's a challenge too, as well, as, as you mentioned, often it's easy for us to, for the academic currency to, to know if people made manuscripts, right? That's easy. You could put their names in PubMed index, which is what we did as part of the study. But there's also these things that we can't capture, right? That's so success. So uh, sometimes maybe a podcast or webinar are not easily found or a blog or whatnot. Thankfully, we have Google and you can Google everyone's name and find things for the most part. But are there other ways that this was successful in the sense that I know for myself as a pod member, it really was successful and it wasn't something... Yeah, I thankfully was part of a pod that we we did publish and had a, a conference abstract and things like that or workshop. But but it was also successful in the sense that it, I think it helped me develop networks and people and like build that kind of presence within Somi and and provided me opportunity for future positions and and things like that. So but that's really hard to account right so i think that's the challenge in some of this is how do you count those indirect benefits mm-hmm. or ben- yeah benefits that you get from this so that i think is a challenge that we still struggle with but they're they're there
0: yeah the intangible piece that is probably just as valuable if not more valuable than a single mm-hmm. you know publication or output or something like that if you get people engaged and excited and like making those networks and connections and things like that. That also gives you like sustainability and longevity in people's careers and mm-hmm. all those things that are bigger than even a sole project can be. And that's hard to hard to capture, as you pointed out. So mm-hmm. that should that counts as success as well. but how to how to evaluate that tangibly is is challenging. And I know
1: that I'm not the only person that has a story like that. I know uh, like anecdotally, right, talking to our, People, wonderful colleagues in Somi and things, just talking to them. Many of them have had similar experiences that being part of a pod or being a pod leader really helped their career development. So it's, again, like you mentioned, I love that intangibles. Like, that's the stuff that it's hard to capture, but I know that they're out there. And so, mm-hmm. and I think that definitely highlights
0: the success. We just can't quantify it as easily and, and, and put it in a paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you, how do you capture like people's like emotional feelings and attachment and again, that sort of enthusiasm and describe it to convey like the impact of this, again, like thing that started in some ways as an experiment, but it has Mm -hmm. had longevity. It's pretty cool. So tell us then about what you all found with the survey, kind of just general main findings about how the pods worked, benefits, challenges. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the perceived benefits
1: were definitely several things. People enjoyed meeting like-minded people. That was definitely something that many of them enjoyed. Finding your people, right, as you mentioned. So that was a a big thing. So meeting colleagues with similar interests at other institutions, because we tend to work in our little bubbles. And so it was nice to meet people outside of that. Development of scholarly work, which, you know, again, we didn't define for them. And so they, you know, based on the survey, many of them said that that was a big benefit of this. Then the other thing is really engagement in new experiences and the networking part of it. So I think those are uh, many of the the biggest benefits that our participants highlighted. As with anything, there are definitely challenges with these pods and most of them related to how busy we all are. So difficulty finding times to meet based on competing clinical demands was a big one. But also a thing that I, now we're learning in this virtual world is the time zones is really hard. And like, how do you coordinate multiple different time zones to find a time to meet with others that you know work the best? And so rather than just a few people i meeting ideally you'd have some sort of quorum right have a, a good group to have some discussions and things like that and so aligning times around time zones was very was very hard those would say I would think were the top two biggest challenges others did mention you know some things with you know role definition and like the being very leader dependent and how successful they were and things like that so I think those were some of the the biggest benefits and challenges that we've learned through the survey.
0: And in your own personal experience, like as being part of a pod, what, like, how did you overcome since you, since your memory of it was like, this was a really successful pod. Like, how do you think that your group was able to like overcome some of those challenges, for example?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think holding each other accountable was a big part. I think we, in the pods, I was part of two pods and both were pretty successful one more than the other. And it was really, a lot of it was holding each other accountable. We would divide out tasks. So like, you know, this person's going to do this and we give a, a soft deadline and this person's going to do this and have a deadline. And we also had kind of, I think, goals to work towards, right? We were going to present at APCCMPD for a workshop, or we're going to submit an ATSIC proposal or, or whatever it might be. But we had kind of those targets to aim for. Many of us are very, I think, type A and and a very target focused. And, and so that, that helps when you have some of those targets and goals and delegations of tasks. So I think that was really helpful in, in the pods that I was part of.
0: Yeah. And were there any really salient ideas or suggestions for improvement that came out of the survey?
1: Yeah. As you would expect, not everybody likes to fill out the the comment box. <laughs> people like more of the Likert scales so that you can just pitch those. But I think there were, thankfully, people that were able to comment on what could be better. And most of those related to kind of having those clear roles and expectations. Because again, the first pod iteration didn't have that. And so having kind of clear expectations, roles, and also really Having the pod leader really being the one being holding each other accountable and just having a really strong, devoted, engaged pod leader was huge. And again, I think all those that feedback really led to our creation of the project leadership working group because we took that feedback and I think really wanted to, to develop that into a successful working group for the next iteration of the pods
0: yeah and just to give you give you credit for your survey you had a great response rate like remarkably good response rate which to mm-hmm. me suggests also that this was such a group of engage, again engaged folks like mm-hmm. that the pod you know they may have even been completed with their pod time and that many of them still chose to answer the the survey and kind of give reflections and things like that i it just it's unusual to see <laughs> such a high yeah. response rate so Yeah, we were very thankful for that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And also, you know, a large proportion were trainees during some point in their pod participation, which you mentioned. But Mm -hmm. I think that's also just an interesting point to highlight because maybe you get people as they are more primed for, again, for engagement and for participation. And you can develop them into, into the future leaders of these pods and members of the ATS and things like that.
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, because I think that is really important, because as you mentioned, we're building the next generation of clinician educators, but it's also, again, related to those intangibles. I'm sure for those fellows, hopefully, they're able to build that network, and maybe they're going to be looking for jobs right soon, and or a fellowship, or another fellowship they wanted, and they're getting connected with people around the country. So like, oh, I know that person. I can reach out to them and just ask them, are there any job openings or what, what might, you know? So I think there's also that, but again, those are those intangibles that's hard to, to capture, but I know what personally for me, I, you know, again, was a fellow during the first iteration of the pods and it, it really did help me kind of build my kind of uh, career as a as an early, you know, as a trainee, but an early career physician.
0: Yeah. So lots of different sort of benefits across the board. And so you shared with us some of your own personal experience with the pods and opportunities for growth, especially within the leadership component. So t- tell us then about how the development of this latest iteration, the project leadership working group came to be and yeah. like, what does it look like?
1: Yeah, great. It's just one of those things that just, I was Talking to Dr. Carlos about how I really enjoy those, the the first iteration of the pods and we just kind of were talking and we're like, well, you know what, maybe we should make a new one and really focus on the project pod leaders because again, that's kind of where we noticed the need was. Mm And so I think that really, again, just having those conversations and then taking initiative and, and getting it done. So then we applied for a working group and then created this project leadership working group. And again, the focus of this one, this iteration has been on faculty development of the pod leaders. So what we do in these, the meetings and the working group now has completed, because as you may know, the working groups for ATS is for two to three years max. And now the three years has gone, gone away, which is crazy. Uh, that it's already been three years since we started this, but now it's really integrated within the SOMI. So it's part of it, the ATS section of medical education, because we've seen its value. But what we did is we would have regular meetings and every pod leader that was on the call would give us updates on what their pods were doing. So they were expected to tell us, you know, oh, we're, you know, we met, we are working on this so-and-so project, we're, you know, we're not, we're not having a challenge in this area. And then kind of would brainstorm with each other about like any suggestions? Has anybody done this? What can we do? So it really helped each other hold each other accountable, kind of work together to create solutions to the challenges and barriers that we were all facing. And again, the timing of this was during COVID, which is a horrible time for many of us. And we were all strained, obviously, but it, it was also, I also noticed that not only was it helpful from like the scholarly point of view, but also wellness. We were able to see each other and talk and see, you know, like see virtually, right. But it still was really nice to just see other people talk to other people, spend a little time just kind of venting about the day, the day in, day out kind of challenges that we're facing. And I think it really built, it helped us with the camaraderie and that communities of practice. So we not only had the shared interest of MedEd, but we also had the difficulties of COVID and, and all the, the surges that we were feeling and all the pressure and all this challenges. So I think it kind of, there was a second benefit in that regard for the project leadership group. And, and so we met regularly, did those kind of discussions and then decided we wanted to write this project as a paper that we're talking about today together as, as a group. So it was really fun to do.
0: That's great. I mean, again, to the intangibles piece for even for the, like, Mm -hmm. kind of leadership level of folks. And so then, is this, does it continue the same way now? Is that how the pod leaders continue to meet on a routine basis and kind of workshop all of their projects together?
1: Yep, yep. So we have a project leadership chair and vice chair that are part of the exec committee for the Somi and then they those two the chair and vice chair meet with the pod leaders to discuss kind of what's going on in their pods what are what can we help with that sort of thing. The other thing I just want to highlight with the project leadership Pod working group, and it's in the supplemental with this paper. Is we actually created much clearer roles and expectations. We created a meetings template that people can use for their meetings, for the meeting minutes and stuff. And then we've kind of guidelines. A lot of people talked about authorship and like how do you decide who gets to be author. And so we created extra documents. And then we also worked on a document on like what are some good resources for funding or med ed resource resources and things like that. That's kind of a living document that always needs to be updated, but we did create those things as part of the project leadership pod, a working group to really help again, those smaller, the specific area interest pods.
0: Yeah. It's like, you're bringing again, together all of these folks from different institutions, different like levels of, and of experience and exposure to different things. And actually just like crowdsourcing mm-hmm. all of that incredible resources in one place. Like what a neat way to to do that. And to then for them to then be able to provide all of that support for all of the members of the pods to come like for, for future years. Mm -hmm. So then what are like kind of next steps from here? Like what other areas of development are there now that the project leadership group seems like it's running pretty smoothly?
1: Yeah. I think there's still areas of interest, I think for future research, I think a few things would be what is the right pod size? I think that's something that we've been discussing again at a donately it seems like the number might be 6 to 8 or something like that cuz we learned that too big of a group people then just kind of get diluted and it's hard to really develop Roles, tasks, and, and and things like that. But if it's too small, then everything goes on a couple people. So finding that right number, I think, is kind of a, an interesting idea to think about. Is what is the right number for these kind of communities of practice for success? And then also accountability is how do you how do you hold people accountable? Again, as we mentioned, these are all extra things that we're doing. Obviously, it's part of our career development. We love it. We need some of the scholarly work and things like that. But we also have full-time jobs that keep us busy. And so, and in life outside of that. And so how do you balance that in the accountability? How do you keep people engaged? That sort of stuff. So our paper didn't get to that at this point, but I think that's kind of an area of future research is how, how do you do that? Especially in this kind of future virtual world, right? Of We all get kind of zoomed out or, you know, that sort of stuff. I think, how do you, how do you encourage and engage through this medium.
0: Yeah. How do you maintain, again, that sort of enthusiasm mm-hmm. for this collaborative research and the camaraderie and networking that yeah. we, like, we, like, we re-up annually or semi-annually as we go to these meetings, but then mm-hmm. you have to maintain it kind of all the rest of the year yeah. when we're maybe bogged down with other responsibilities and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, when you solve those questions, we will be waiting (laughs) (laughs) in general, Dr. Kelm, you've been so successful in building your career as a clinician educator with quite a considerable research portfolio, maybe for all of our listeners who may be in very different stages of, you know, training to points in their later career. Can you share with us for you, what has been some of the most instrumental building blocks or resources that you have found along your journey? Well, thank you. I I appreciate
1: those kind words. And I feel very fortunate and grateful for what I've I've been able to do thus far and look forward to the future. I think things that really have helped me has been, and again, not to... Keep saying the same thing, but these this network has really helped. this, The ATS Sectional Medical Education has been key. So I, I would really encourage our listeners to make sure that you're plugged in in the Sectional Medical Education if you're interested in a in a career as a clinician educator or like medical education or want to just start testing testing it. Out and see if it's something for you but it's a really amazing community there's a lot of opportunities you can get involved in these these pods so it's just on the website you can click a link and get involved in, in your area of interest so that really helped me the other thing i would say is you know i have an area of interest at procedural teaching and in a professional and education things but i remember reading a paper that was kind of like something i was interested in and i literally just emailed the the senior author and the first author on it and just like, Hey, I really liked your paper. Do you mind if we chat? I have an idea I have a project. And just, so just reaching out beyond your bubble, right? Like we all have great institutions, we have communities within our institutions, but don't be afraid to reach out externally, reach out that, reach out behind, beyond your bubble, use ATS SOMI. Or if there's somebody that you're really excited to learn more about based on a re- paper you read, or maybe it's a A blog or something, whatever it might be, just reach out to them. Many of us are excited to to chat with people that have an interest in what we're doing. And so um, that really helped me in creation of a multi-site paper is just reaching out to other people. So I think not being afraid to meet people network, I think has really been vital to my career. The other things has been just finding a niche within your area. You know, MedEd is a really big area. And so what within that do you want to do? And so creating your kind of your own niche and kind of becoming really passionate about that and, and finding, you know, people that you want to work with again, internally, externally, but I think helping when I found my niche within MedEd, I think that really helped narrow down my focus. Cause again, it could be really really big. And then internally, thankfully, within my institution there's a lot of great opportunities for internal grants. So if your institution has that, seek that out or I mean other programs. So HS Somi has a, a grant that they have or APC SMPD has grants, Chest has a grant. So there are other, you know, societal grants that people can go for for med ed research. So look for those opportunities because med ed research is not easy. <laughs> people might think it can be, but it's not easy. We do need some funding support. And so look for those opportunities. So those have really helped me internally to really be successful. So I'm really thankful for that. And then the last thing I would say is creating a, a mentorship team has been key. So I have people within pulmonary critical care that are my mentors in but I also have people outside of PCCM. And so I think finding a mentorship team that could help you. So it doesn't have to be, you know, a med ed guru in PCCM. It could be in a whole AGI or whatever it might be within your institution. Find find some people that do med ed research in your institution, even if it's not within your field, and, and seek them out. See if they're open to, to working with you and in creating that team, I think, really has been key for me in my success.
0: Those are all really great Pearls, you know, people who are just starting out, fellows or junior faculty should like just re-listen to that last like three minutes (laughs) (laughs) from Dr. Kelm. But a lot of that like resonates with me and like maybe, you know, stumbled and learned it along the way, or you know, but that's a great encapsulation of a lot of different components that are really helpful and valuable for, you know, as you build your, as we build our careers, kind of grow in this field and grow in this community of practice. And, you know, as we sort of set down these norms and the culture that we're trying to create within our, within our various groups. So thank you for sharing all of those reflections with us.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. I just appreciate the the opportunity to talk to y'all about this paper. I'm really quite thankful for this paper and, and proud of the work that we did as a group. So I am thank you for your interest and I'm really excited for the future.
0: Yeah, and we will uh, make sure to link to some of these ways to get involved in the show notes and on social media when this podcast comes out, so y'all can look forward to that. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into this week's episode of Scholarly. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org/scholarly. Thanks again, Dr. Kelm, and thanks to our listeners, and appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you.